It's Wednesday, April 15th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill with me today, the one and only Andy Cross. Good to see you, my friend. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Hanging in there. I got coffee. I'm good. Good. Yeah, um, me too. We got, uh, we got a lot going on. We got retail, we've got airlines, we've got entertainment, but we're going to start today with the big banks because um, it's earnings season. And the, yep. as an industry, the big banks sort of lead the way. Uh, Goldman Sachs and Bank of America both out with first quarter reports. Goldman Sachs profits down 49%. Bank of America can take some small solace in the fact that their first quarter profits were only down 45%. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the real uh, headline, I think, from the banks, Chris, is just the reserve, the loan loss reserves they're taking now in this quarter. So when you look across almost all of the banks, that's been the biggest hit to their profit picture. Uh, the revenues were somewhere in the flat picture. For example, Goldman revenues were flat. Uh, JP Morgan's revenues were down like 3%. Wells Fargo was down, down about 18%. So the revenue lines weren't such the concern. It was really much more the profit picture, as you mentioned. And it, we're just seeing that show up in the earnings per share of these companies. But the biggest part for that are these loan loss reserves that these companies have to, the banks have to set aside in the expectation that the economic crisis, the pandemic that we're facing is going to cause some of their clients, both on the consumer side and the commercial side, to not pay their bills. And so they have to set aside reserves for that. So when you just look at like what happened with, with Goldman, um, their earnings were down 46%, and they set aside $937 million this quarter. That's almost as much as they sent, set aside for all of 2019. And that's four times the amount they set aside in the first quarter of 2019. And you see the same thing across all of the, the big banks. JPM set aside an additional $6.8 billion. That's $4.4 billion on the consumer side, mostly for cardholders, and the rest on the on the commercial side and across the entire company that set aside $10 billion more in reserves than a year ago. So you're seeing these banks really start to ramp up their uh, preparation for what they expect to be a very tough market over the next year. Well, I would also think in the case, uh, you know, for uh, every one of these banks has an investment banking arm. Um, Goldman Sachs is is sort of the clubhouse leader, and I would think that as we are in this environment where it's really hard to imagine any company going public in the next, say, at least two months, probably closer to you know four to six months. Um, that's one more thing that uh, a bank like Goldman Sachs has to worry about. Yeah, Chris, absolutely right. So there's just these very high margin uh, parts of their business that are going to start to see um, the uh, uh, fluctuations, if not complete drops, because that market has really started to soften. What's interesting on the Goldman side, and Goldman's really going through this um, this reformatting under the new CEO, their new their new CEO. Um, the bank has really kind of struggled. It's such a it's such such known as such a class name in the banking space, but the stock has actually struggled and the returns on equity have actually trailed their peers over the last few years. So there's a real push by the new CEO, David Solomon, to start to really invigorate Goldman Sachs again. So we had this whole plan when he became CEO after Lloyd Blankfein um, just recently, and then obviously the pandemic hit. So, um, But a, a bright spot to Goldman uh, a big part of their business has always been their trading revenues, and that's actually been kind of um, a little bit of an albatross for them over the past couple of years. 
But that actually was a bright spot in, in the first quarter. The same thing with J.P. Morgan. Goldman's trading revenues were up 28%, and J.P. Morgan's trading revenues were up 32%. So because of all the volatility, because of all the frenetic trading activity we're seeing in the markets uh, from both institutional clients and, and consumer clients, for the big banks, it's mostly institutions, we're we saw these results pop up for some of these larger banks like Goldman and JPM. So that's that was one small bright spot in a quarter that obviously is showing a lot of pain. JP Morgan's um, long-serving CEO, probably the most respected name in finance, as we talked about, G, uh, Jamie Dimon, Chris, who had suffered a um, had to have emergency heart surgery a few uh, months ago and came back to the job right in the middle of the as the pandemic was starting to really get going. Um, he put out his earning his his uh, his annual letter that he talks about every year and really tried to set the tone for the market um, ahead of what we. The the financial institutions and banks will see over the next year because there's obviously a lot of concern uh, with the just the just the plumbing and the financial picture of um, U.S. banks. Let's move on to the uh, airline industry because several airlines, including Delta, American, JetBlue, and Southwest, have said that they have reached agreements with the U.S. Treasury Department on part of that $25 billion plan for payroll grants. Um, Obviously, this is uh, good news for those airlines and and uh, the people who work there. But it really does seem like this is I, I don't want to call it a band aid, um, but it seems like it is a um, a relatively short bridge um, that'll get them through the next couple of months, hopefully. Um, but all the airlines really seem like they have their work cut out for them. Chris, I think I think bridge bridge, um, if not band aid, bridge I think is a good term apropos because um, so of the two point two trillion dollar in the stimulus package that was signed into law last week or in late March, um, now the the airlines are starting to work with the Treasury Department to figure out how they can access that in both in grants and in loans. And as you mentioned, pretty much all of the airlines, all the major ones, are going to start tapping into this. And this is obviously a needed step for these businesses that are really struggling. You are seeing bookings that are down 70, 90 percent capacity in the company. These companies um, have they have taken capacity out from their business, um, both domestic and international. So it's really starting. There's a, there's a heavy fixed cost in these businesses, and when they have nobody flying and nobody buying tickets, especially business travel, which is really slowed down. Um, you're starting to see it now show up in the potential future of these businesses. But back to your bridge comment, I think these uh, the airlines, when I look at almost all the industries um, uh, that operate, and you think about the recovery patterns, um, I don't know if we're going to be in a V-shape recovery or a more of a U-shape slow growth recovery of uh, both in the U.S. and worldwide, but I do think the airlines, travel companies, of all the industries, they will really be in the most flat shape recovery. And I think it'll take a while for consumers to be able to come back into the travel mode, get used to going back into airplanes, get used to going back into airports. I mean, airports basically over the last 10, 20 years have become big retail destinations. And you are seeing now foot traffic into airports drop off a cliff, and that's hurting the retail establishments inside these airports. So that industry is just going to take a long, a long way to recover. 
they, they, they needed this. They needed to be able to tap the uh, U.S. government to help them support their business because without that, you would see massive bankruptcies in the industry. Let's move on to the retail industry because we got the, the March retail report and it was, I think, every bit as bad as we were all expecting. Um, retail across the board down 8.7% in the month of March. That is the worst in history, worst drop in history. And for context, um, I think third on the list is the drop in retail that we saw in November 2008. And this was more than twice as bad in terms of uh, percentages. And you start going through this, Andy, and of course, the lone bright spot is grocery stores Mm. up around 27%. But some of these other numbers in here, you look at, at clothing and clothing accessory down 50%, um, motor vehicles down 25%. You know, these are not surprises, but uh, kind of like we saw with the monthly jobs report for March. And we knew that it was much worse because it really, they only started, uh, they stopped collecting that data mid month. It's the same thing with retail. I mean, I'm looking, you know, one of my thoughts when I was going through the March retail report was, my God, how much worse is April going to be? Because then we'll have a full month of this. Chris, it was a really devastating report. And I guess not too surprising considering what we had seen in in late February and obviously just our own consumer behavior. But just for some context, first of all, that 8.7% number, Chris, you mentioned is just the drop from February. So it's a month over month seasonally adjusted number. But historically, that, if you go back, They've collected this data since 1992. If you go back, usually that month-to-month change is in a small less than a percent change. So the average is about 0.35%. So it's it's pretty tight. It's a very tight range. So you're talking an average of 0.3% with a standard deviation, so change from that average of less than a percent. So you're really talking a very tight range. Here you're talking last month we saw a drop of 8.7%. So it's significant compared to the average and not in way outside this the uh, norm of what we see over the last few decades. So like you mentioned, the worst number before this was in the great financial crisis when it was when it when the number fell 38 and 3.9% back to back. Um, so we're talking twice as much of that as that drop. So just some context for that about how significant this was and just knowing what how we have changed as consumers, it's really pretty um, it's evident and now we're seeing it show up in the numbers. So as you mentioned, some of the areas really got hit just really just um, very significantly. Um, and then you see com- you see spots like grocery stores actually have a very significant ramp because as we are continuing to spend more and more at the groceries to try to stock up in preparation for the quarantine that we are all um, facing and, and now still face. And then you see things like food services and drinking places down 26% from the month before and obviously just showing there that the, the real impact and that's having ripple effects because when you talk about 10 to 20% of the global of the US employment is somehow tied to entertainment travel that area getting back to our airlines business that's why you're seeing these weekly unemployment claims jump up to you know 15 17 million uh, here in the US so numbers that are now finally starting to kind of come out from the government that are showing the real stress that the US economy is under uh, you know, grocery stocks, uh, you know, uh, Safeway, et cetera, um, historically haven't been the greatest investments. And I'm wondering, and I, and I actually haven't looked at them recently, but I, I look at this report and it actually makes me think, well, wait a minute, 
you know, in a world where grocery stores are at the top of the list for, you know, essential retail services, um, you know, sh should I be looking um, at grocery stocks now? It's really interesting, Christy. Uh, so I think a big part of that is because they grocery stores have very thin margins. Uh, and then when Amazon came in and bought uh, Whole Foods, really put a complete different picture into the into the competitive landscape um, for them in already a shifting world when more and more of us are starting to order our, our um, groceries and pretty much everything online. Um, but now you're seeing some some companies, like you mentioned, some grocery stores. I mean, just look at like Kroger. When you look at the last, the year-to-date chart, Kroger um, finished the year at around 28, and now it's up past 32. So you, you are seeing some, hey, wow, there's maybe a little bit of life in these companies that had very thin profit margins, very competitive um, picture from larger players, a changing landscape with online ordering and consumer behaviors. Um, and then just the fact that they are really price takers, not price givers. In fact, that they, the suppliers have much more of the pricing power than they did in distribution, maybe not quite the competitive advantage that it once was. I still think most of that has not changed. Maybe over the next year or two, these businesses will see some light because as we are stocking more um, goods, especially non-perishable goods, I know every day um, <laughs> it seems like another box of Frito-Lay chips ends up my doorstep as we continue to, to stock goods uh, preparing for a summer of quarantine for my family. Uh, that is obviously, I think, going to be good for these businesses. But again, long term, I see nothing that the this the the pandemic is changing the competitive advantage of these businesses, and so I still expect their profit margins to remain thin. I still expect their cost structures to remain um, high, and the revenue is pretty scant. So um, the, the the valuations of these companies have been had dropped very low. So not surprised that we're seeing some some uplift in the stock prices. But overall, I still don't think they're the greatest investments when you look out the next three five years. So we've been talking a lot recently about the video streaming services. Um, we talked about Roku the other day. Certainly, Netflix, Disney Plus, as we're all in this situation, and Comcast has decided to roll out its new streaming service, which is called Peacock. Um, it's actually launching today uh, for members of the. Comcast Xfinity X1 service and their Flex service. So if you're subscribers to those services, uh, congratulations, you get the first look at Peacock. Uh, I, I'm, I don't know, Andy, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of torn on this one because I understand why Comcast has essentially made this decision to do this sort of slow rollout. And I think there's a, a version of this where it works out well for them because everything I've read to this point says that, okay, they're, they're coming out to existing subscribers of their, these two services. Then they're going to sort of f slowly roll out to more and more audiences um, into 2021 when it, it sort of goes full blast. That's a very different strategy. And I, I get that we're under different circumstances, but that's a very different strategy than what Disney did with Disney Plus. Because what Disney did was from their original timeline to when they actually launched it, it was about a year and a half. They kept tinkering with it. They kept trying to work on the interface, the programming, and then they unveiled it to everyone at once. 
Um, seeing what Comcast is doing here, what's your uh, what's your thought of this strategy? Uh, so I'm a Comcast shareholder, first of all, I'll just say that. And um, the the streaming peacock and the streaming business that they uh, uh, undoubtedly had to get into from the competitive landscape, considering all the streaming um, uh, options out there and large companies that are now doing streaming, as we mentioned, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, obviously, and others, um, Roku, for example. Um, so they so they had to do this. I, I actually think this move, Chris, different than what Disney did. I actually think it's okay for Comcast, and here's why. So um, I have X1 here in my house. I don't have it in front of me, so I'll have to go check out um, if I can get, um, if I have access to Peacock. Um, they obviously have a huge library of programs. Think Parks and Recreation, The Office, 30 Rock, all those great shows. Um, we are all now at home. We are looking to consume content in ways that we've never done before. Um, our appetite to, for, uh, to, to switch among providers and look for the content that we want is higher than ever before. Now, we might start to see a little bit of fatigue in that, but I think at least we're, we're at home, we're hooked into our Wi-Fi, we are accessing digital media uh, in ways, um, frequency, um, volume and um, variety like we've never have done before. So this will take a while for them to kind of, um, as, as, as one of their um, executives said, hit their stride as they go into 2021. And I think they are saying, listen, we're going to roll this out in a time where we know people are really looking for content because they're at home. And we're going to do it in a way that is, is going to serve um, customers who are really the ones that are tied into our network the most. And we're going to start there and iterate and build that out. Um, and so I, so I applaud them for that approach. They still have their key subscription business tied to their cable offerings that still generates the bulk of their, of their cash flows and revenues. Um, so as they, as they add these on, uh, to do it in a way that will kind of just start to utilize some of their, their programming and their library tied to their, their consumers who are uh, either most loyal or the ones that are, that are tied into the X1 uh, subscription offering and their package. I think it's actually a pretty smart move. And then they're going to kind of go and evaluate how it goes over the next year, year and a half. And then hopefully by 2021, they'll really start to have all the kinks worked out and they can go big time with it. Well, and uh, certainly for um, parents um, who are maybe maybe they've gone through the Disney Plus library already, uh, you know, uh, Comcast has got, uh, you know, they got DreamWorks Animation. Um, uh, they've got the Despicable Me franchise. You know, they've, they've, they've got some uh, a pretty good library of uh, not just television but movies as well. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And and obviously, at this time, it's like content is king, right? So you want to really try to. I mean, distribution is becoming almost like everybody is there because we are all so tied into our our Wi-Fi and streaming offerings. And now with 5G rolling out, we're going to have more and more of a need for our, um, content that we can we can watch over faster and faster networks. So, you know, I really think those businesses. I mean, Netflix and is spending more than $10 billion, um, probably far higher than that over the next couple of years on their content. We know Disney's library. We know the other libraries that we mentioned about Comcast. We know Apple's putting a lot of money into their offerings. Amazon is as well. So when you think about the companies that are going to end up probably doing the best, 
it is the ones that have the the brand access, have the quality of programming, have the balance sheets that can, that can sustain it. Comcast, much like Disney, is they're not a one trick pony. They have they have their core cable offering business business, just like Disney has its theme parks and other other lines of its business businesses as well that gives it some diversification like Netflix. Um, but Netflix, the stock has done so well over the past few months, mainly because it's a leader in streaming and has the, the probably the best content for streaming both in the US and globally. Disney Plus obviously is a huge competitor and a, a, a very capable rival when you look at their uh, library as well too, of course. And for people who are big fans of the Fast and Furious movie franchise like our uh, friend and colleague Greg Robletto. Yeah, that's that's on Peacock too. So uh, so yeah, there's there's definitely a good library there. Yeah, and, the, um, and, the, and Chris, they have they, they have they have like a uh, they have a ad-free version, they have an advertising version. So they're doing this they're, they're doing all the things that you're starting to see from like the likes of Roku and some of the other streaming offerings to be able to both uh, visual as well as audio you look at what spotify has as well too and apple so you know i, I they're, they're they are taking the right steps that i think is going to be a good long term for them andy cross thanks for being here hey thanks chris be safe as always people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and the motley fool may have formal recommendations for or against so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear that's going to do it for this edition of market foolery the show is mixed by dan boyd i'm chris hill thanks for listening we'll see you tomorrow